and welcome to the Chart of a Library podcast, where we discover the words on our shelves and in our hearts. I'm so excited for this episode, guys, because it is so different from my other episodes until now. Because I am going to tackle a little challenge, so to say, and that is the pure audio format of my podcast. Don't get me wrong, I love it because it can help you relax your eyes after a hard day at work, after you looked at your screen for too long, etc. But today I want to play around with your imagination a bit and combine that with some books that I'm very excited to read in the near future. Does that sound fun? I really, really hope so. But you might be asking yourself, what are we actually going to do today? <laughs> and that's a very good question. We are going to combine two of my passions, which is reading and art. As you might have heard in my last episode, we had a little holiday for a week at the beginning of May, a little staycation at home, and I watched a lot of art-related videos and was suddenly reminded how much I enjoyed art class in school. I do draw gifts for friends or decorative pieces for our apartment from time to time. And I also follow smaller artists, for example, on Instagram when I like their style. But it really had been a long time since I thought about famous art from the big masters and the interpretation and stories behind them. So in order to dive deeper into that topic, I searched for a way to incorporate these well-known artworks in my podcast. And what I will be doing today is that I will match a famous painting with a book that I'm very excited to read soon. The reason why I paired the two can be plentiful. It can be the general vibe of the painting that reminds me a lot of the plot, some characteristics of the people depicted that match the main character, or maybe even the history behind it that also shines through in the book as well. But all of these are books that I'm very excited to read and I think would make great additions to your to-be-read pile as well. But it would only be half the fun if I did all of this on my own. So I asked you, my listeners, over on Instagram to submit the famous paintings that come to your mind, like the first ones that you could possibly Think of. So thanks so much to everyone who participated. I will do my best to describe the paintings and the vibe I get from them here in my podcast. So grab a drink, get into a comfortable position and try to imagine these paintings before your eyes. But for everyone who does want a bit more of a visual support, you can either head over to my Instagram where you will find the pictures in my podcast highlight or you can also go to my YouTube channel where I now also do show my face from time to time, where I will also include them in the video matching this episode. As you can hear, I'm super excited for this. I really hope this format works out the way I imagined it. So let's jump in and try it out. The first painting. I was so happy when this was submitted. Generally, this whole experience was a great feeling of happiness for me because I had some in my mind, like the first ones that I could think of. And luckily so many people also submitted these so I could pick them. It, it was perfect. So the first one that I want to talk about is The Birth of Venus by Sandro Botticelli. 
I will start with this one because I have a very special bond with it. We talked about it in art class in high school and what we did is actually that we paired it with an old Chanel number no. 5 ad that was inspired by this picture. So like it or not, that was my first contact with the advertising industry. I bet you my arts teacher would not have thought that I would end up studying and working in that field. She really has got no clue what she did there. <laughs> so now close your eyes and imagine a shoreline where green grass meets blue water and you can see the waves and you can almost hear the waves. And very close by you see a little part of a forest. From the waves, out of a giant shell, rises a woman with long strawberry blonde hair that is billowing in the wind. What strikes you as odd is that she's wearing no clothes, as if she was just freshly born but already in the body of a grown woman. But she's not alone in the picture. From the left we see an angel flying over the sea towards her. He carries another woman in his arms. This lady is naked as well, by the way, with the same shade of hair color as the woman standing on the shell. And from the right, from the forest, enters another red-haired woman, fully clothed, her hair neatly braided, who tries to cover up the beautiful Venus who has just emerged from the sea. The painting in itself is very beautiful, but I think also the things you can interpret from it are marvelous. Don't get me wrong, this won't be an in-depth art school report where I talk about the epoch it was drawn in, etc. But rather, what are the first things I think about when I see this picture? In my mind, Venus depicts a strong woman who is trying to be covered up by society that is trying to constrain her. No matter whether she's just born or already a full-grown woman, the pure fact that she is female condemns her to a life in boxes. She sees other women carried away by men, or in this case the angel, and yet again others who try to cover what they might find unseemly about her behavior. But deep down she thinks, at least that's what I read when I look into her face, that this is not what she wants. This translates into the following book prompt for me. We've got a female main character that is comfortable with her femininity and uses it to get what she wants. But she also does what she deems right and she does not try to conform with society. And the perfect book when I looked through my Goodreads TBR that I found for this was actually Wicked Fox by Cat Cho. Wicked Fox is set in a modern-day Seoul, the capital city of South Korea, but it has influences from Korean folklore, because in this we follow our main character, Myung, who's 18 years old, but she's a gumiho, which is a nine-tailed fox spirit, so to say, who must devour the energy of men in order to survive. and. Actually, for her, it is very easy to get along in the modern day because hardly anyone still believes in those old tales. 
But what she does, and this is actually what I find to be a nice twist, is in order to survive, she has to devour the souls of these men. But she only does so when she deems the man to be evil, when he's done something evil. So in a way, she's also trying to help society to get rid of the people that might harm society in some way. But of course, as it is with these novels, she does not stay along for a long while because she is met with a male character called Jihoon who accidentally stumbles into her when she's actually in her nine-tailed fox form. So he sees more than just the pretty girl because he has seen her true self. And because they have got some obstacles that they have to overcome together and because they are actually fighting for Myung's life, they actually develop a friendship and, of course, something more. Actually, I'm very excited for this because of the South Korean folklore element, because I have not read this all that much. And this year, I really want to also focus on reading more Asian-inspired, Asian-translated works. So with this, I think it's a good bridge over into that genre. The next painting that we have is I think the most popular one that was submitted and actually it was also one that I thought of instantly and that is This Cream by Edward Munch. I can totally understand why it is so popular. The painting in itself is not very detail-oriented, but it rattles something deep inside of you, deep inside your core. It's the fear of despairing, of being afraid of what's coming. It is absolutely marvelous. If for some reason you have not seen this cream, just look it up on my Instagram, on YouTube. It's very simple in the way that it is drawn, but the way how the colors are used and, and the facial expression of the main element, which I will come to in a second, it really does something with you. It's, it's incredible. I think this is definitely one that you should look up to really get the feeling of what I'm trying to convey. Because this painting is an evening scene with a landscape already cloaked in darker colors. We stand on a bridge where we see a couple of people walking away from us into the sunset that is coloring the sky in all hues from deep red to orange to yellow. But it is not this mesmerizing scene that draws your attention and it is also not the lake that lies calmly in the background. It is the face of a man looking at you, who is deadly pale as if he has seen a ghost. He's bald and holds his hands to his ears as if he wants to shut out the world. But what is the most striking about him are his white, pupilless eyes and his face, contorted in a scream that you can almost hear even though it is just a painting. I can totally get why so many people instantly thought of it, because it is disturbing in a way, but this also makes it so memorable. And this scene and feeling of great despair can only be matched with a book that is also conjuring this feeling of a lost world and a character that is navigating it to the best of his or her abilities, but they really do struggle along the way. And this is what I try to do with the match of the book which is The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemsen. You might have already 
heard me talk about the fifth season actually when I did my episode my reading coaching session with Randy over from California I also recommended this to him because what NK Jemisin did with this series is absolutely remarkable she won the Yugo award with her three books in that series in three consecutive years so the full series got the Yugo award in consecutive years so absolutely incredible high praise for NK Jemisin I'm really really excited excited for this and I think when you hear what it is about you will really see why I matched it with this scream and why this despair really shines through in what is going to happen in this book because actually three terrible things happen to our main character in a single day her name is Isun and she is a woman that lives a relatively ordinary life in a small town but one day she comes home to find that her husband has murdered their son and kidnapped their daughter and you're like what how did that happen meanwhile an empire called Sanse which really has been bringing civilization forward with its innovations collapses and most of its citizens are murdered because of a vengeance plot of some totally mad individual and worst of all across their continent there is a great red rift that is developing and that is spewing ash and fire and everything like it is so despairable because she is in a totally crazy position where she has to find the murderer and kidnapper of her children, her husband. She also has to deal with the world that is falling apart, not only naturally, but also from a civilization point of view. So everything, everything that anchors us as people in this world, society, family, our surroundings, everything is suddenly broken and she really has to try to do her best to get along with these really really worsened conditions so i think this is a perfect fit i know i just barely scratched the surface of that synopsis i just wanted to give you a general vibe what it is about but i'm very sure even though you might think oh Oh, this book synopsis there is so much happening and nothing is really good that is happening <laughs> i really don't want to read this book trust me i have trust in the people who give out the yugo awards that this will be marvelous in writing and in the plot and in the characters moving forward i will read it and i will let you know once i read it whether it really is worth it and whether all of this desperation really carries through or if hope comes into the picture very soon so that even the people who might not be as interested in a synopsis as this feel comfortable picking it up the third painting is probably the most iconic and most well-known painting and the funny thing is not many people submitted this one maybe because it's so obvious that people were like oh no i don't want to submit that it's so basic but it's totally fine because i think no painting in this world stands so much for the grand masters as the mona lisa by leonardo da vinci and there is a reason that even though when you've got no interest in art, when you've had nearly no contact with art whatsoever, this is the one that you know. <laughs>
<laughs> when we see the picture before our eyes, we conjure the image of a woman with auburn curly hair that is covered by a translucent veil. Her clothes are modest and other than the paintings we heard about earlier, this is clearly a staged portrait. She's sitting upright on a dark wooden chair with her hands over each other on the armrest. The background is dominated by a vague outdoor scene, but it is not fully flushed out because the main focus of the picture is the face of Mona Lisa with a smile that is not quite happy, but not fully staged either. It is neither modest nor totally aloof. It is a smile that I can hardly describe in this podcast, but more a smile that art professors and critics have been pondering about for centuries what her smile might really mean. When I look at Mona Lisa, I think she's a woman bound in this situation that her parents or husband or whoever wanted her to sit portrait, but she had her own agenda. She's gentle on the outside, but actually there is something in her eyes that speaks of her true feelings, that she would rather be elsewhere on her own secret mission, following what she desires. And the book that I would be matching with this is Ariadne by Jennifer Saint, which is actually a pretty new release. It just came out at the beginning of May this year. And for everyone who is familiar with Greek mythology, the name Ariadne might sound familiar. She's not one of the most popular characters, but if you dive a bit more into it, you definitely come across her name. Ariadne is a princess of Crete and daughter of the fearsome king Minos. And Minos and Minotaur, yeah, I, I think now a lot of people will make the connection because this family, the royalty of Crete, they have a secret that is not so secret and that is that Ariadne has a half-brother who is the Minotaur, a half-man, half-bull creature. And he, because he's so violent, demands blood every year. So they sacrifice people to him every year. But suddenly, Theseus comes into the picture. He's the prince of Athens and he arrives in Crete sort of as a sacrifice to the beast, but secretly he wants to kill the Minotaur because he says, this can't go on. We can't sacrifice people from Athens. We can't sacrifice people to this monster. It has to stop. But of course, when a prince and a princess meet in an ancient story, of course, there has to be some sort of love element there. Because Ariadne really does not want Theseus to fall victim to her brother. But what I really found interesting is something that I read in the synopsis and I will read it because I think that it for me describes something that is lurking behind the Mona Lisa painting behind her look at you that is really encompassed in this synopsis. In a world where women are nothing more than the pawns of powerful men, will Ariadne's decision to betray Creed for Theseus ensure her happy ending? Or will she find herself sacrificed for her lover's ambition? Ariadne gives a voice to the forgotten women of one of the most famous Greek myths and speaks of their strength in the face of angry, petulant gods. Beautifully written and completely immersive, this is an exceptional debut novel. This sounds good, right? <laughs> 
I'm really, really happy that I found this because I'm a huge fan of Greek mythology. I have been ever since I grew up. My fiance and I, we recently played a video game that was also centered around Greek mythology and it was just great. It was very enjoyable. So yeah, great, great pick and Mona Lisa, great famous painting. The next submission, I have to admit, was only submitted once, but it was so different that I really, really had to put it in the podcast. And that is The Tower of Blue Horses by Franz Marc. It is probably one of the lesser known paintings, but it is very interesting because it is very energetic. The main focus of this painting is dominated by four blue horses that are all drawn in quick, long strides of the brush. They are trotting towards the viewer, but they are looking to the left part of the painting as if they were distracted by something. Only one of the horses, probably the leader of the group, has a distinct facial outline and you can see agitation and a readiness for what will come next for his group. May it be a fight or any other looming danger, he is ready to face it and protect the others in his group. What is also striking about this painting is the contrast between the background, mostly clad in yellow and reds, that really makes the horses pop from the canvas and makes them feel very alive, even though they are blue horses, which is not very realistic. But what we can also see is a comet-like object falling from the sky, which could probably be standing for all the dangers this group might yet have to face. So what we search for book-wise is a main character that has leader abilities and a group of characters that fight for their and others' survival. And for this I will pick a release that is coming very soon and I'm super excited for it because it also really dives back into my childhood and I'm, I'm, I'm super excited for it, guys. And that is She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chen. It will be published on the 20th of July, so everyone who's interested, mark that in your calendars. And it is a story that makes Mulan sort of meet the Song of Achilles. And for everyone who knows me, I love the, the old Disney movie. I've not seen the new Disney adaptation of Mulan. I don't know if I will do that, to be honest. But I really, really loved the old classic movie of Mulan. And I also love the Song of Achilles as a book. And in this, we start off in a famine-stricken village where a boy and a girl get two very, very different fates forecast for their lives. The boy gets greatness, of course, and the girl gets nothingness. It is China in 1345 and China is under harsh Mongol rule. And when times are that hard, of course, a fate of greatness is something very special and something nearly unobtainable for the lower classes. So when the Jewish family's eighth-born son gets given the fate of greatness, everyone is so happy over the moon. They can't really believe it that their son was chosen. But when their second daughter, who is actually very 
clever and capable gets the fate of nothingness everyone's just like yeah that was expected she's just a girl you know that talk that no one wants to hear about anymore today yeah exactly that but when a bandit attack orphans the two children and the brother actually succumbs to the despair that everyone he knows except for his sister died and he sort of loses his will to live and dies as well the girl gets new energy and tries to escape from that crazy situation that she was put in that she's got no one who's anchoring her in her village and of course this is horrible and she's suffering from this but at the same time it's a big chance for her because she is not constrained by what her family is making out for her so what she does in order to escape is that she not only takes on the identity of her recently deceased brother but also his fate of greatness so what she does is that she goes to a sanctuary in order to you know build up her new life when the sanctuary is destroyed because it is supposedly supporting the rebellion against the mongol rule she takes the chance and also assumably from the cover <laughs> goes into battle so yeah you've got on the one hand the great backstory of greatness and what greatness really means and what toll it takes on the people that have the fate of greatness with the general mulan setting and the identity that is taken in order to survive or in order to help other people i i'm so excited for it guys i'm so excited i can't say it enough <laughs> i can't wait for july because also the cover for everyone just do yourself the favor and look at the cover it's marvelous you get the asian vibes you get the vibe with the fighting scene what's coming one leader standing more at the forefront and i think it just matches perfectly with the picture i just now realized looking at the cover more closely that it also has an orange and yellow background just as the actual picture that i talk about the tower of blue horses so this was not intended but it's a very nice coincidence staying in the realm of yellowish backgrounds the next painting i want to talk about is Adele Bloch-Bauer number one by Gustav Klimt. Honestly, this would not have been the first Klimt painting that I would have thought about, but hey, <laughs> I'm rolling with whatever you guys give me. So what really strikes me about this painting is the sheer glorification of the person that is depicted. It is also a portrait, so it is rather staged. And the whole background is designed in a gold, yellow pattern the dress of the woman is also adorned with white and black patterns on a golden dress and she's sitting on another golden piece that somewhat resembles a throne and the actual woman that is depicted has got very fair skin and dark black hair and she has her hands folded before her body the overall feeling from this painting is as I already said, very glorified. I cannot think of another word for it. And you immediately are reminded of modern filters that make everything prettier in our current time. I think this is a very good analogy to what I'm trying to convey here. So what I was looking for in a book matching this painting was a main character who is 
flawed as we all are because we're all humans but she's not seen that way by her surroundings and her existence is perfected through the eyes of the painter or in this case other characters we meet during the story and the first one that came to mind for me was Emma by Jane Austen. I know I'm currently reading this book technically, but I'm just a third or something through it. So I think it still counts as a future read because I have not explored the whole story yet. But I think it matches this prompt perfectly. So for everyone who does not know, of course, Jane Austen is a very, very famous classic author. Nearly everyone knows her whenever you think of famous British authors especially female authors, one of the first is definitely Jane Austen. And in Emma, we follow our main character, Emma, who is very well situated in her life. She's got money, she's clever, she's super pretty, she gets compliments from everyone, so she's got everything that she wants. But the thing is, because she's so very comfortable, her life also is maybe a bit boring. And in order to make it not so boring, she loves to do matchmaking with people. She is very confident in her abilities to do so because the last match she sort of staged, at least she's telling herself that she staged it, actually went ahead and got a marriage out of it. So she's like, yeah, I'm the totally perfect matchmaker. Everyone out of the way. I'm doing this now for all of you. I will find your perfect pick. And of course, she tries to do so with a friend that she very newly acquires. And all sorts of, yeah, societal consequences <laughs> stem from these actions. And what is really special about this book is that for our current day standards, nothing really crazy happens. <laughs> yeah, there might be some societal implications, but for the time back then, they were huge scandals huge things going on, a lot of stuff that is going on between the different families living in the area where Emma lives. And it is just fascinating to dive back into that mindset and really realize how far we have come from there and how much also the female role in society has changed. And also to see in Emma a character that definitely has her flaws, but is glorified by nearly everyone except one person. And the banter between Emma and this one person, once you really got into that mindset of the way how they spoke back in the day, it's just marvelous. I really enjoy it so far. I have not finished it because so many other books come in my way all the time, but definitely if you are up to reading more classic works, it's a great start because the overall story and Emma as a character are just very, very interesting. We are slowly coming to a close. We are at the last three paintings. And the one I want to talk about next is The Great Wave of Kanagawa by Katsushika Hokusai. 
this one was actually very popular too. And I mean, I've known it before, but I did not really think that it would be so popular among the entries. As you can hear by the title, we totally leave Europe and European creators behind and enter the Asian continent. The utensils used to create this art piece change, the canvas changes more to a wood carving that is illustrated further with painted accents. We see fisher boats out on the sea doing their jobs, but it is not a usual day for them, because over the boats looms a giant wave that is depicted just in the moment before it breaks. It has built up on its way to shore and is about to hit the small boats floating in its wake. The scene is peaceful in the drawing style, but this stays in stark contrast to the scene that is depicting a violent nature phenomenon that all families with fishermen in their midst know all too well. It is undoubtedly one of the most famous Asian paintings that is known in Western countries and therefore I wanted to choose a book that transports you into a totally different cultural sphere. And one book that will probably definitely do that is The Library of Legends by Janie Chang. In this book, we again enter China in the 1930s, when Japanese bombs begin to fall on the city of Nanking, also known as Nanjing to some of us. 19-year-old Hu Lian and her classmates at Minghua University are ordered to flee, but because they are students of the fine arts and culture, they do not want to leave the books that are relevant for their culture behind. So they take with them a priceless treasure, which is a 500-year-old collection of myths and folklore known as the Library of Legends. So we've got this tight-knit group of students who on the one hand really try to protect their culture, but on the other hand really have to struggle for their lives because of the always impending air attacks. So I've got great hopes in this one. It actually came out in May last year. So everyone who wants to be transported to China in the 1930s, grab a copy of it. It sounds very, very great just to get to know a little bit more about the culture and what all those folklore tales really mean in the Chinese upbringing, in the development of the country. We will follow up with another artist who is very, very famous for several of his paintings. And I think whatever one would have been submitted the most, everyone would have been like, yeah, this is definitely one of the most important and most well known of his. And that is Vincent van Gogh. And the painting that was picked is Starry night. It is very atmospheric and it really lives off of its drawing style, with small strokes creating an overall flow of color and color contrasts that really tantalize you. We see a night sky in different hues of blue, but it is not a dark night, because a big moon and several stars shine their light on the village scene we see below on earth. It is a quiet village, with a church and several tiny houses all with lights out, as it is appropriate for this time of night. But what makes you feel somewhat uncomfortable is a giant structure in black and red strokes that is looming close to the village. It is not very clear what it is. Is it some kind of giant plant? Is it dangerous? Does it mimic a castle? From a first look without research on the picture, you don't get an answer to these questions. But it just adds to the overall stunning atmosphere of the painting. 
I searched my Goodreads for a book that is atmospheric, a bit out of this world, and gives you a feeling that something evil might be lurking over the peaceful scene. And the book that I chose for this is The Other Side of the Sky by Amy Kaufman and Megan Spooner. We follow two main characters. The first one's name is North, and he's the prince of an empire that is located in the sky. And he lives in a gleaming city that is held aloft by engines and in general powered by technology. And his counterpart in the story is called Nim, and she's a living goddess of the people on the surface on Earth. So we've got a very nice, intricate, interwoven story of, on the one hand, technology and science, and on the other hand, folklore and everything believing in certain gods. Their lives are intertwined, but they are not allowed to like be together in a romantic sense, but they have to work together because of a devastating prophecy that can only be acted against when the two unite. I have to admit, because it's a several book series, I think the overall premise and how this world is built up, I think is very interesting and how these very two opposites of science and of believing and the whole goddess on earth scenario really intertwine and also collide. I think this is a very, very nice setting and potentially also for the story moving forward through the next books. So I'm very excited for that. I already have it in physical form sitting on my shelf. So I really, really need to get to it. And last but not least, we've got The Breakfast of the Rowers by Pierre Renoir. This is a picture that I have to admit was sent in by my mom. <laughs> and the fact why this is relevant is because I grew up with this picture hanging over our dining room table. And even though I looked at it for over 20 years, I always spot something new in this painting that I never really saw before, that I never really thought about before. We are thrown headfirst into this very lively scene by a body of water. I can't tell whether it's a lake or a river, <laughs> to be honest. And here we see a group of male rowers at breakfast. They are accompanied by women and have a wonderful time. The table is laden with good wine and bread and people are engaged in conversation. There's a lot happening with several groups of two to four people talking to each other. But even though the scene is bustling with energy, they are quite protected from unwanted stairs as a hedge in the background is separating them from potential onlookers from the riverbank. And they are shaded from the sun by a canopy of orange and white striped cloth. I will not describe all people and their different traits in the picture, as that would make this episode way too long, but one of the people depicted that I always found the most striking growing up is a young woman with a hat crowned with flowers that is cradling a little dog. It's very sweet. <laughs> So for this masterpiece, I wanted to go with a well-known and well-acclaimed book that has multiple characters that all work seemingly independently, but in the end you will see the connection between them all and how they all work together towards a situation they all created together. And that is a book by one of my top priority authors this year, Brandon Sanderson, It's the Way of Kings, the first book of the Stormlight Archives. These books in the Stormlight Archive series were 10 years in the making of planning, of writing, of world building. So this statistic alone gives you an overview of how much work by Brandon Sanderson went into this 
series and how it would not really make any sense or it would not even give it justice if I would have tried to summarize it in a few sentences because there are just too many layers about it. I would highly suggest if you are not intimidated by big books, give it a try. I have only heard fantastic things about it from everyone who's read it. It's on the top lists. If you Google for lists of top fantasy novels, it's always up there. It's absolutely phenomenal from what I've heard. So if you're not intimidated by it, please give it a try because I think it will totally be worth it. So this is it guys. I hope you enjoyed this little experiment. I can definitely say that I enjoyed it very much and I just loved to really take a closer look at your most popular famous paintings and try to match them with a story that I'm super excited to read. Let me know on Instagram, YouTube or email whether you enjoyed this format and whether I should do a follow-up. I think I've been rambling about paintings and books for quite some time already, so today I will skip the meet the character and bookish question section, but I think you still got your fill of book recommendations, <laughs> so bear with me about that. I really hope you could relax a bit and try to conjure these paintings in front of your inner eye instead, so that you can emerge well rested from this podcast experience. And until next time, I hope that we discover the words on our shelves and in our hearts. Bye! Thank you.